Whenever I visit France, I always see lots of top bottles for sale, but when I get back home, those same bottles can be much harder to find, if not impossible. That's why I use IdealWine.com. At IdealWine.com, I can buy wines directly from France for delivery directly to my home. They have new auctions every week, and the fixed price selection is equally awesome. Clos Rouchard, Chateau Reyes, and Ulysse Colon, as well as many more greats from all over France, are regularly available on the website. Best of all, it is simple and hassle-free to buy them. Ideal Wine handles all the customs and logistics hurdles for you and for me. Wines are ordered with a couple of clicks, and then they arrive. It is simple. Check out IdealWine.com for more information. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com to find what you'd like to be drinking. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. Marco Tanessa of Agnostro on the show today in the Campania, but fermented in Sicily. Hello, how are you? I'm super well, thanks. Very nice to see you. My pleasure. Thanks for coming along. So you live in Milan today, and that's where you were born, but then yeah. you also have a connection further south. Yeah, exactly. It was just a coincidence. I was born in Milan because I'm the second of two, and my grandparents uh, live in Milan. So my mother, in order to get some help with a second uh, baby, she moved here for a bit, but just for a month, really. So I really grew up and think of myself as a, an original Campania guy. You ate the food of the place. And yeah, yeah, I grew up uh, in a small village in the middle of nowhere. We are not close to Naples. We are not close to anywhere. You just imagine uh, a little village of 10,000 people uh, surrounded by mountains so it's very bucolic when you think about the Italian the countryside. This is where I come from. The only interesting point is that um, differently from the idea you might have of the south of Italy, I come from a cool area, fresh. I mean, we are in the middle of mountains, so the temperature there is low and very often actually lower than Milan. This is an implication on the probably personality of the people but also uh, for what we are concerned on the grapes, the wines, and the foods. Was there a history of winemaking in the family? No, not at all. There was an history of uh, food in the sense that my father runs uh, two supermarkets, uh, but we have to think that my father used to run supermarkets in the small village in the south of Italy 50 years ago. So it's really a time when you could barely speak about a supermarket. It's like a grocery store. And uh, I grew up in a family where good ingredients, I mean, good food uh, has always been uh, a key subject. So my father was selecting the best cheese, the best uh, meat from local uh, farmers. So I grew up in a family where food was really a big, big uh, subject. But wine was not. And um, when I turned 18, I remember a good friend of mine in Tuscany. We were in Pistoia. This guy came to 
my his cousin house. His cousin is one of my best friends. He's in this nice town of Pistoia, which is not on the radar screen of uh, tourists, but I definitely recommend visiting it. It's one of the many hidden gems that Italy has. So this guy comes along and uh, says to my friend and myself, okay, let's go to Florence. I take you to a nice wine bar. So uh, a, wine, uh, a place where they were cooking some food and serving very good wine. I was 18 years old at the time, and it was really shocking for me. I still remember what we drank, uh, the sequence of the wine. I remember we started with the Quattro Formaggi Tagliatelle with um, Sauterne. So Sauterne is obviously the first time you drink it. It's something completely mind-blowing, no? Especially for an Italian guy who is used to Southern Italian sweet wine, which are heavy, very high in alcohol and blah, blah, blah. So suddenly I could feel that there was a wine with a lot of taste, very tasty, but with freshness, elegance, and light body. This is something that has uh, stayed with me for the rest of my life because this is what I always look when I taste new wines or when I discover new wines. I like the tastiness, I like the um, expression of a terroir, but I, I love wine that always have a degree of freshness. So we ended up uh, the dinner after a couple of uh, more of extra Sangiovese, local uh, charcuterie. We went back home, we ended up buying a bottle of uh, Sauterne and drinking it at home with just bread and honey. And it was uh, one of the best uh, night of my life because it was fun, it was friends. Uh, and since then, I started buying wine, started visiting producer because I wanted to understand what was behind such uh, a good, uh, such good wine. Uh, um, again, you have to remember that 23 years ago, Winemaking was not a subject at all, especially in Italy. Uh, there were great winemakers here and there, but the, there was no wine industry, as we would say today. And uh, most of the best wine were made either by a local uh, rich family that used to have a long tradition or by some entrepreneurs. So... Um, I started visiting a producer, both in Italy and abroad, and this is uh, how I slowly got into the magic world of uh, wines. What were some of the key visits? In Italy, I would definitely say Lange area, because when I was 18, I moved to Milan to study economics. Uh, in the 90s, that was the subject, not winemaking. And uh, being just an hour and a half drive from Barolo, I used to visit that area because Barolo has some features of Aglianico, which is the grape uh, that is very common uh, in my region. But uh, many producers were just more professional and therefore Aglianico was uh, just better, better winemakers. And so, but I, if I have to name one, I was having... Uh, lunch at La Cantinella in the middle of the village and I saw this label with a beautiful girl and a very ugly old lady and underneath the nice lady 
there was the word botte, which stands for the big barrel, the one that is traditionally used uh, for the barolo making. And underneath the old and ugly lady, there was the, the word barrique. Because you have to put the things in context. Back at the time, there was the hype of the barrique winemaking in an area where barrique was not uh, part of their history. Just to make things clear, I love wines made in barriques. I love Burgundy wine. I love uh, Rome wine. I love uh, some of the Loire Valley wines. It's just that we don't have a long tradition in uh, winemaking in the barrique. So barrique really uh, back at the time was uh, a shortcut for some producer in order to better match the tastes of Anglo-Saxon consumers who were the big buyers back at the time. So I saw this label and said, oh, I have to visit this guy. And it, uh, it was Bartolo Mascarello. Yes, everyone knows he was the one standing in the 90s saying, no, you don't uh, go that way. Barolo has to be made in the traditional way, even if in the first years of their, its life is not uh, a pleasant wine, easy drinking for everybody, but that's the way it should be. And a funny story is that he became very popular because when Mr. Berlusconi came over, Berlusconi, I don't know who, how much you're familiar with Italian politics, but I would say Berlusconi is our Trump. We went to something similar 20 years ago. So he, um, so big entrepreneur, a media guy, and blah, blah, blah. So this guy became very popular after a while because he, he came up with his wine, with his label, no barrique, no Berlusconi. So it was a very, very strong statement. But I found it was a very inspiring and amazing uh, winemaker. You could really feel when you visited him uh, tradition and um, the real soul of winemaking. I mean, he was really able to put things in perspective. Uh, it really taught me to look at wine uh, from the right perspective. You have to look at in order to know a wine, a wine region, you should, should really know about the history of the area in order to be able to assess whether the results of what you're drinking comes from that particular vintage, that particular producer, the aging of the bottle. So it was very interesting. and uh, I still have nice memories and a few bottles that are real gems and very sought after by wine collectors because at the very end of his life, he was hit by a stroke and he was on a wheelchair. So he used to spend a lot of time drawing labels and uh, have some bottles of wine with the uh, original hand-drawn label by Bartolo Mascarell. You can still buy them today because the company will sell uh, a case with one design label out of six, but I have the original one made by him. And uh, these are few of the bottles that I still keep and with uh, pure love. All the other bottles you have seen in my cellar, they are there to be drunk at the first uh, occasion because wine is sharing. Uh, I hate people that just pile up uh, wine and uh, never find the right uh, occasion to drink. But I've noticed, you know, when I see your cellar, there's a lot of things in there that 
I'm also drinking and that people that I know are really into that not maybe are known so much out in the bigger world, but are sort of icons of, of what I like. Mm-hmm. You know, there's uh, Akamaso, there's Canonica, there's Alamans. Rinaldi, Payas. I think that in every region, there are a few producers that somewhat have the right, um, I don't know how to call it. We have a nice word in Italian. It's sensibilità. It's something similar to being sensible. To It's a matter of feeling, or maybe they just have the palate, the nose, that they find the perfect uh, balance between all the components that we li- like and love in wine. For me, a wine has to have uh, ripeness of the fruits, freshness. Um, it's something uh, that uh, is not easy to find uh, everywhere. And so um, I realized after so many years that uh, Wine lovers end up very often liking the same wine and very often liking the same restaurant. Uh, So in a way, we can say it's a small world. What I'm really happy about that is I was lucky enough to meet with these people before they became popular because nowadays the market is ready. Sorry, I talk about the market because let's be honest, you can be as bucolic as you like and talk about terroir, talking about respect the soil and whatever. But if you are a farmer, you have to make up your living. So in the end, you think about wine also as a product that you sell to make up a living. And in the past, these people were having troubles. Akomaso is one of my favorite. If you visit him, he's driving a Fiat while he would love to drive a Lancia. I remember 10 years ago, he he was dreaming about driving a Delta, Lancia Delta, which is a car that uh, Italian uh, car lover know because it was uh, winner of several rally. Uh, you call it rally? Sure. Okay. Yeah, De Bartoli used to be a race car driver for Lancia. Ah, I didn't know that. Interesting, because De Bartoli is one of the names that obviously we all love. And I had the luck uh, to meet him 15 years ago. So, but he didn't have the money to buy a lancha, which is, what, 30000 If you think about the price of uh, one hectare of Barolo today and the price of a bottle, it's really peanuts. But for him, it was impossible to drive a Delta. So meeting them back at the time when they were not celebrities really gave me the chance to get in touch with them. And they really noticed that I was there because I had the genuine interest in them and then obviously seeing them over the course of a decade or 15 years has taught me a lot and the last results uh, last but not least is that as you could see i have plenty of that bottles in my cellar and i didn't spend a fortune on them (laughs) which is not uh, bad so you started to have a vision of what you liked in wine yes exactly I found that asking questions, no matter what was the vinification style, the style of vinification and the terroir, there were a few concepts in co- that all the wine producer that I used to be, I used to love and visit were sharing. No matter where they were in Burgundy, in Rhone Valley, I really loved the north of the Rhone Valley. I really like Syrah. 
Siraz se sepage that I love, Nebbiolo se sepage that I love, and of course uh, Aglianico. These are my favorite. And Grenache, even though it's not easy to find a proper Grenache. All of them were sharing the same concept. I visited Rayas, uh, Emmanuel Renaud, for the 10th time this year, 12th time. I brought some friends along. They were asking, what's your secret? The woods. If you visit Chateau Rayas, he has 60 hectares, but probably around 10 hectares are planted with vineyards. All the rest is wood. But this creates a very special uh, local climate because... As you all know, in uh, wine, it's very important to have a temperature a swing, big swing in temperature, because this makes the, uh, the skin thick and very tasty. And also woods are very important for biodiversity, because this is where you have seen a vineyard in the winter, there is no leaves, there is nothing. The vines are just leaping. And all the bacteria, the insects, all the um, fauna that leaves in the vineyard will move into the woods. So having woods surrounding uh, your vineyards is a clear plus. So a big focus on the grapes was paramount for all of them. And then in the the cellar, really most of them are super easy people. Uh, They press the grapes. They have different techniques from Soldera, who doesn't do any pressing, to people who crash, uh, crush the grapes. They let it stay. Uh, Spontaneous fermentation, which is today a hot debated topic, normally happens very easily in a a healthy environment. And then time will uh, make the the rest. Most of the focus has to be on the smell that the wine will give you, especially in the initial phase. And this is not something uh, very straightforward, maybe because in the beginning you are tasting juice fruit. So being a food lover has helped me in that respect uh, because just like when you smell a fish to check whether it's fresh or not, uh, sea urchin, let's think about sea urchin. Some people might think, oh, what is this sea urchin stings? While it's just actually the beautiful smell of the seaside. So you have to be somewhat familiar with this kind of uh, smells and uh, this will help you a lot in winemaking. Because you take the skin out when you think that the smells are there and you don't want to add the bad smells. And then that's it. Fermentation. I remember Mascarello saying, okay, if it doesn't finish this this winter, it will finish next one. Doesn't matter. Uh, I mean, there was a concept behind that if you did the things right in the vineyard, all the rest will be just a natural consequence. Again, I like to stress that this is a very commonly accepted concept today. It was not 20 years ago. When people, uh, especially Italian winemakers, had to find their own way uh, to get a grip on new markets, and uh, especially in this Anglo-Saxon world. Uh, Back in the 90s, uh, you know, Parker style used to rule the world. I'm not saying anything, nothing against these people. I mean, they're good professionals. They know what they're talking about. It's just that, um, obviously, by tasting thousands of wines all around the world, uh, they were not probably that interested into local exploring all the terroirs. 
which has become now a very fascinating topic for all journalists, wine lovers, consumers, all around the world, in food and in wine. It seems like there's a return to traditional ways, but at the same time, there's um, expertise that, exactly. that, that's not just local expertise. Exactly, exactly. Because uh, guess what? Globalization has not brought just competition. People in Italy, I guess it's everywhere, uh, pretty much the same, like to complain, oh, nowadays it's getting tougher and tougher. Yes, it has brought competition, but it has brought unprecedented um, opportunities. Let's just take my example. I'm a super small producer. I started 10 years ago only, but I can catch a super cheap flight and visit an importer in Denmark, which or in Belgium, uh, fly into New York, get in touch with people all over the world with social media. And again, you have a new generation of people that has traveled and has more knowledge. If you talk to local producers in Taurasi, most of them, it's beautiful because they are very loyal to traditions, to local... Uh, they know exactly the local climate, how to grow a vine and blah, blah, blah. But they haven't tasted the top wines all over the world. They haven't spoken with green wine producers. So in a world that has not been sharing knowledge, no, which is what makes progress in the end. Gianfranco Soldera, who makes uh, one of the best Italian wines, he told me about the old Taurasi and the old Fiano that Mastro Berardino used to make in the 60s, that they were the best, among the best wines right. in Italy. He told me that the white from Mastro Berardino were the most expensive wines in Italy in the 70s. And if I look at the wines today, Mastro Berardino was the only one, not just in the south of Italy, one of the very few ones in Italy who had already developed the concept of terroir because you can drink today at Taurasi Riserva Castelfranchi, Montemarano, Piano dell'Angelo, and even for the white wines, he, he used to have uh, different terroirs. So I went back uh, to Campania after 20 years in Milan, and I still live in Milan, but my wine is the result of what I've learned in many, many years. So uh, did you meet Frank Cornelison through Akamaso? Or? No, not really. Um, that was a period of my life when I fell in love with this uh, beautiful Sicilian girl, actually half Sicilian, half Polish. So I was traveling to Sicily twice, three times a month. And um, we were traveling around Sicily and uh, spending time uh, by the seaside, the lovely Sicilian cities, but also, obviously, I couldn't miss that chances, local wine uh, producer. Uh, you name it, Marco de Bartoli, Duca di Salaparuta, Tasca d'Almerita. And then I started to explore the north slope of the Etna, which actually started to appear on the wine map 10, 15 years ago. And I came across this uh, guy, this enologist from Friuli, who was coming from Australia and then running this company called Cottanera. I invited him over dinner we had, because we had a nice visit. And we started talking about the wines that we love. And he told me, oh, but then if you like this kind of wine, 
you should go to Solichiada and visit this Belgian guy who used to be a wine importer in Belgium. And now he just started the very small production of uh, local grape varietals in Clayam, Foreign, blah, blah, blah. And guess what? The next day I was there visiting Frank. I still remember when I first tasted his white uh, Mongibello. It was simply shocking, mind-blowing. Because it was uh, an 18 degrees white wine, partly oxidized, partly macerated, that mm-hmm. you see with skin contact, skin's yeah. contact, which was a, a new concept back then. Because, he, yeah, probably Gravner started in late 80s. I still have old bottle of Gravner in the early 90s. He, he was doing white wine in Barrique. See, that's reality. So, and Gravner is uh, one of the legends here because he has been always 10 years ahead of the game. And uh, Frank was one of the very few using clay amphora. Again, let's make another point clear here. I don't pretend there is a superior recipient. I just want to use a neutral recipient in order to focus on extracting the flavors and the unicity of a terroir. You're saying vessel. When you say recipient, you mean like something to hold the wine. The vet, where yeah. you put the, vi- the, the wine, basically. It can be high-density polyethylene. It can be concrete vet. It can be clay amphora. It can be wood barrel. Uh, in Italy, there has been a big fashion of barrique in the 90s, and now it looks like a wine made in barrique. Oh, no, 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 suddenly... Barrique is bad. That's wrong. It's conceptually wrong. I just think that there are beautiful wine made in Barrique. I think, but I think that knowing where to source Barrique, it's very tough. Knowing how to use this Barrique is uh, an art. So I'm not interested in which uh, vat or recipient or any call it whatever you want to call it. A producer uses, I'm interested in his ability to bring the uniqueness of a terroir in a glass. A wine has to be pleasant because drinking a glass of wine or two is a moment of joy and uh, best if you can have a unique feeling. Uh, when you do a wine, you can only try once a year. So you have to be brave in order to put at risk your production and having the willingness to experiment, to explore. As I told you, in my first vintage, which is 2007, I put uh, different tapes at the beginning of every single uh, vine uh, line uh, just to try different pruning. And I also tried different bottling, April, May, June, just to see, because with wine, the results of what you do today will be very clear maybe in three, four, five years. So it's very interesting. And especially the first year, uh, by the time you taste a wine that has to be bottled and you think it's ready, it's, I'm afraid it's too late. You should have bought because bottling is a small shock for the wine, especially if you don't add sulfites. 
it gets a big uh, oxygenation. So if the wine was ready, I'm afraid it's a bit too late. So um, you learn and you have to be humble enough and uh, keen on learning. So your first vintage was 2007 and it, what you started to do was have Alianico that was grown in the Campania, selecting and sourcing that and then vinifying it in Frank Cornelison's winery in Sicily. Exactly, correct. First of all, I thought that were, there was something wrong going on in my wine region, Taurasi, because having visited Taurasi since uh, early 90s, I noted, noticed a sudden switch to Barrique. Suddenly, everyone was using Barrique, which again, is nothing bad, but I think it was not properly used. It was mostly used to add a bit of sweetness to a grape varietals that on its own has strong acidity and strong tannins. But it was to me not a clear convention of superior quality out of the barrique. So I said to myself, let's try and obtain the same sweetness of the tannins, but with proper grape ripeness, the ripeness of the fruit, which is not super easy in my region because of two reasons. A, it's a very late harvesting region. I normally harvest in early November. That's after Barolo, it's already in Cellard, after Barbaresco, after Brunello, one month after actually, compared to Brunello and at least a couple of weeks compared to Barolo depending on the vintage, obviously. So I try to balance out uh, the acidity and the strong tannins with the ripeness of the fruits. When you taste the grapes, it's very interesting, especially the seeds, because that's where you get a lot of tannins in the Aglianico. So Aglianico is such a powerful grape varietals that even if you leave 5, 10, 20 kilos on a vine, on a single vine, you will still have a very high degree of sugar and in turn of alcohol, which is the main parameter that, that people look at to assess the quality, the supposed quality of a wine, which I think is wrong because this is true for the big bottlers. They buy... People who buy grapes and make taurasi, in order to make taurasi, they want at least 14 degrees alcohol. So depending on the level of sugar of your grapes, they will pay double the price. So um, people are obsessed with the level of sugar and they are not obsessed with the tastiness, the ripeness and the complexity of the fruit, which in turn is something that in my family has always been paramount even when you buy fruits at the supermarket or the fruits that we grow in our garden. We have peaches, we have pears, and uh, when the fruits pops out, my father goes and uh, does the pruning. He just takes some fruits off and throws them away because the fruits that are left will be tastier. And guess what? It will be easier to bring them to a perfect level of uh, ripeness. This is why sometimes you, you might find some inconsistency on, uh, in the quality of some Taurasi producer, because you have 
some smart people over there and they are improving and increasing in numbers um, because we are also learning. Uh, so something that uh, has always been very clear to my mind uh, because of what I eat, something that I've always been told during my visit suddenly become a no-brainer for me in, in my wine region. And uh, I think that either you like my wine or not, you can notice that there is a certain ripeness in the fruit, which has to be balanced by freshness. I mean, for me, it's interesting because it's Alianico, right? So I think Tarasi, but it's vinified in Sicily. So <laughs> I think Frank, you know, in his style. And then, but to me, there's like a, in the background, really, there's like a, a Burgundy, Rhone, like Rayos kind of worldview in terms of the palate. It's very interesting because, uh, and it's flattering somewhat, because if you think about it, Burgundy is my favorite wine region together with the Lange. Rhone is the next one, but not because I think Syrah is not as good as Pinot Noir. It's just because you have less producer in the Syrah uh, area. In Burgundy, you have a, re a really a significant number of producing, doing excellent wines. And then when it comes to Rhone, I really believe that Aglianico is a great varietals with characteristic in between uh, Syrah and Nebbiolo. It has the body and the tannins of uh, Syrah and uh, Nebbiolo, especially Nebbiolo, the acidity and the mineral note, but with a more Mediterranean flavors uh, notes uh, typical of the Northern Rhone and, uh, and also a spicy notes that tends to show up after several years exactly like Syrah. I think that Syrah is the wine that improves the most with aging. Many, many great wines improve a lot with aging, including Pinot Noir. But drinking a great Pinot Noir today or in 5-10 years, you get a sense of uh, the terroir, of the flavor of the grapes straight from the beginning. With Syrah, I'm afraid you are really missing some key feature unless it's 10 years old. It's just that new flavors show up. So I think Aglianico is amazing because it combines uh, the fruit, the freshness, mineral, and also salty notes uh, of uh, Nebbiolo with uh, the Mediterranean notes of some wines from the northern uh, Rhone and also Corsica and Sardinia. When you experimented with pruning Alianico, what did you find and where exactly are you in the zone? Okay, I'm in Monte Marano, which is uh, a village right in the middle of the Taurasi denomination. It's one of the crew that Mastro Berardino used to vinify separately back in the 60s. And by the way, that vineyard is still there. And um, it goes from... 350 meters to 850. You are in the middle of a valley surrounded by mountains. So you have a beautiful climate. And Monte Marano especially is facing north. Uh, 
It's very interesting, but many wines that uh, come from uh, warm region, like Chateau Rayas in Chateauneuve, San Barolos, uh, Chateau Simon, Chateau Simon, are facing the, the the vineyard is facing north because it adds some freshness, which is again something that uh, I love in wine. It's probably is not a coincidence; it's just my taste. Castelfranchi is opposite; it's facing south, so you can feel a bit of a difference. It will be you will have richer. Uh, wines and more on the fruit very often. Obviously, then depends uh, on the vintage and the altitudes you are. Because again, we go from 350 to 850. So it can uh, vary a lot. But just to tell you, uh, Montemarano normally has three, four degrees less. Obviously, we are talking about Celsius. It will be at least double, if not more in Fahrenheit terms. Um, temperature difference with Castelfranchi. Montemarano is actually cooler than uh, Milano. So that's different. By pruning in different uh, ways, I found out something extremely interesting. The level of sugar doesn't go up, if not by 0.1% alcohol, but uh, the ripeness of the fruit changes completely. And the complexity, the deepness. Uh, this is what I've learned. I have uh, different batches of 2007. And uh, it's interesting because the vines that had, hadn't been pruned, they still give you a very pleasant wine, very alive, uh, easy drinking, but uh, it lacks uh, the complexity and the deepness uh, of a great uh, wine. Because there's a traditional training system in the region called Starsetta where the, yes. it looks like tall trees. Or tendone, big tent. Yeah, there are some historical reasons behind that. You have to think about the region where you are. You are in the middle of Campania. This is not an area where rich people used to live. You know, sometimes when you speak about Sicily, Tuscany, you, know, you imagine this beautiful castle where nobles used to live, the dukes of that, the duchess, the baron. No, we just had poor people there. Uh, <laughs> and so this um, uh, system allowed you to plant uh, other vegetables underneath the grapes, which we know is wrong because you have to put water and uh, vines is competing with fruit and blah, blah, blah. But uh, these people had to make up their living and uh, this is what they used to do. If you look at the average size of a local plot in Campania region is the smallest in Italy. We are talking about the average farmer owning something in between two and four hectares. Nothing. You don't make a living out of it. Most of the farmer will grow grapes, pumpkins, tobacco, chestnut, wherever. And most of them will just sell grapes to big bottlers, which is one of the reasons why you don't have... Uh, Taurasi Renaissance like you have experienced in Barolo or in the Etna 
recently. Etna is booming, but why? Because people from Belgium, from Friuli, Mr. Franchetti from Tuscany, Mr. Zoning from Friuli have moved there, professional people. Frank Ornelison, which probably was not a professional winemaker, but had a very clear idea of the wine-making business all around the world. And plus, you have a lot of rich people in Sicily. Without naming the companies, but uh, you just Google them and you look at the average size, the number of bottles produced, and the name, Duke of this, Baron of that. There are so many, so many of them. We are very simple and humble and uh, poor people. Uh, this has been somewhat an advantage for us. In because, the yes, because we still have um, biodiversity. Our area has not been invaded by, I don't want to name any foreign country wine enthusiasts because it, I don't want to pass a wrong message. These are nice people moved by a very noble feeling. It's just that, um, why not? Let's try. I love Merlot. Let's try and plant Merlot in Campania or Cabernet. There is no Merlot in Campania, in, in Taurus area. There is no Cabernet. There is no Chardonnay. So there are a lot of local grape varietal. We tasted the Coda di Volpe Rosso. I think there will be probably less than a thousand vines in the whole world, namely, obviously, in Campania. Uh, so it's a very interesting area. What we are lacking is the knowledge. Just to give you an example, the farmer that is working with me used to sell uh, grapes to big bottlers. And uh, he used to make one small barrel, not barrique, uh, the tonneau, of uh, Aglianico, which was selling as a sfuso in Damigiana, glass container or uh, plastic containers. You buy five liters, you pay 10 uh, euros and you're fine. But this is a Taurasi. So guess what? At the beginning, he was very skeptical of my decision of the pruning. Plus, besides the pruning, I do another big pruning after but it's a big reward because if I manage to convince a local farmer, it clearly shows you that there is a big uh, change on the horizon. And I hope uh, for the good. And how did you manage to convince Frank to let you vinify in his cellar? You have to, again, to put things in perspective. Back at the time, I think he was producing 2,000 bottles. And I was his largest client in the world. Just because uh, I had a bunch of uh, friends who were wine lovers like me, and we were buying wines uh, from Frank. We became friends. We found out we share same love for food uh, uh, and many things for winemaking. We, had, we really share the same philosophy. And so I was bringing uh, products from all over Italy, wines from all different regions that I discovered. We still do wine tasting after each uh, harvesting, and it's a very nice moment. And one day I said, okay, Frank, why don't we try and vinify a batch of Aglianico? Because I think it's a great grape varietal, but nobody is doing this way. And he said, okay, I, I think... I agree with you. 
Aglianico is a great grape varietal. Let's do that. And he came over to Campania for a couple of years to help me in uh, finding the right vineyard. And then that's how it all started. I do a very, I don't want to say unique wine, even though I think it's unique, but a very characteristic wines. And when a consumer wants an Aglianico in that way, there are not a, a lot of alternatives. While if you go and add some Cabernet and then use a barrique, one day it will be less differentiating in economic terms, to cut the long story short. So it makes a lot of sense to me. It made a lot of sense 10 years ago when I started. And uh, today I've even more convinced so. So take me through the vintages, you know, 2007 is the first one. First one. So what happens in terms of your own progression with each vintage? Oseve was a fantastic vintage. There was no rain for a hundred days in a row. Very ripe fruits and blah, blah, blah. But back at the time, I was coming from non-organic winemaking. And it was more difficult to get a properly fermented wine. As you might have noticed, there is a touch of residual sugar in the 07. It's still a dry wine, fresh. I don't know how much residual sugar is left. I don't care because I think it's a pleasant wine. I like it. But I was more focused on getting the fruit ripe. But I started noticing immediately that with fermentation, we were having some problem. In fact, the next year, I lost completely the vintage. There's no 08, Agnostro. There is no 08 because I was uh, naive enough uh, to do the fermentation in the garden. But guess what? As I said, I harvest in early November and uh, on the Etna at 700 meters altitude, it can be very cold. So the snow came in late November, uh, December. And the fermentation stopped. And the, the, the wine just got the flavor of nail polishing that was impossible to take out, except if you use chemical. But I'm not into that, so I didn't do that. What is paramount for me, it's spontaneous fermentation. I think that the yeasts are really what they give the soul to a wine because it's a unique and very complex, uh, you know, that there are hundreds of yeasts in a vineyard and on a single grape. So I trust that the nature every each and every year, depending on the vintage, will uh, prepare the perfect uh, selection of yeasts that will help you go through the fermentation. As long as uh, you don't treat the vineyards with products that obviously kill uh, the yeast. And this is a big uh, issue today uh, because if you think about glyphosate with uh, wheat, we have reached the point where uh, chemical companies produce a wheat that is so strong that uh, will uh, re- uh, not be killed by a chemical that kills everything else. This is super easy if you have to run a farm because you plant the seed, you treat uh, with Roundup, 
and then uh, you get a properly uh, ripe fruit. And then uh, who cares about the yeast? Because in the cellar, I will use that yeast, that yeast, the other one from uh, that region. Uh, will work between this temperature and that temperature. And I know that I will have, technically speaking, a perfect wine and very often a pleasant wine. What you will lack is the uniqueness of a terroir in my view. So I respect that kind of wine to some extent, as, as long as you are not poisoning people and poisoning the land. But if you're searching for an emotion, you should be looking for something else. So we moved to organic winemaking starting from 2011 when we had uh, the chances to do so because it takes some time. And you tasted 2012, it's different. I felt a lot different, like on several levels than the 10. On several levels. You can still uh, see that the concept behind the wine is freshness, acidity, balanced out by a very ripe fruit. It's just that the tension of the wine is different, the alcohol is different, because I was doing spontaneous fermentation on a non-organic vineyard. So, again, we have to bear in mind that when we move out from the organic feed, you can go from one treatment to 100. So, you can still have wonderful wines, and wines that are way better than other wines made out of organic wines. That's why I don't like simple label, organic, natural, whatever, because you can have great wine in each uh, field. But we noticed immediately that fermentation were much easier. We also learned that, differently from Nerello Mascalese, Aglianico is a very reductive wine, so you need a lot more oxygenation, pumping over, racking, uh, shorter skin contact because 10 years ago uh, it was almost uh, a a battle uh, among winemakers. Oh, I did six months, I did 12 months of skin contact. So what? Did you do that because you were trying to push, to reach the limit, uh, to push yourself to the limit, or you did it because you learn that by leaving the wine with the skin, you get more tastes. So today we do shorter skin contact, only three months, depending on the vintage, can be a bit, bit more. But which is still long by most wines. Which is still a lot. Yes, yes, yes interesting. Fermentation starts straight away from day one, and I don't have. Touching wood, I haven't experienced any trouble. So depending on the vintage, how long the skin contact, how long the fermentation process. And I might change from uh, polyethylene to concrete uh, to clay amphora. I just want a a neutral recipient or big barrels. Uh, Now that I'm moving from 1,000 to 3,000 bottles, I might end up buying a big barrel. It's still a problem because you don't know exactly how much kilos or pounds you're getting until the harvesting. Because from the same vineyard, you can have one year, 3,000 kilos, one year, 4,000, one year, 2,000. In 2011, 
I produced 400 bottles because it was heavy rain and then super warm weather and then heavy rain and then super. So there were uh, there were two grapes left on uh, each uh, vine. I didn't ship the wine to the U.S. So what's going to happen in the next 10 years, do you think? Uh, now that I have just started after 10 years in getting an idea of how Aglianico should be vinified, I will start now exploring different terroirs, different crews. 2015, last vintage, I started with 500 kilos of uh, Aglianico from Taburno Mountain, which is a completely different terroir. Rocky, stone, so poorer, and the wine is uh, different, is more similar to Barolo. It has less spicy flavor. It has more minerality. It will be very, very interesting. And then I want to do a white. reason why I, I was not obsessed with a white is because I think that there are already a number of producers that are making a very, very good uh, white wine in, uh, in my region. I think you have several extremely good Fiano. I love Fiano. It's amazing, very mineral, but still uh, elegant. It's not so, it's somewhere in between French style and Italian style. I find it a good compromise. You have minerality, freshness. Marco Tanessa has found many great wines in Italy, specifically in the Campania, where he's making Agnostro. Thank you very much for being here today. Thank you. Marco Tanessa sources grapes for Agnostro in the Campania, vinifies in Sicily, and has a worldview that is global. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.